they were there when history was made. Rackham Tour is a storyteller. Welcome to the Sports Rackham Tour. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. Lewis gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! LeBron James at the buzzer! The Sports Rackham Tours dusts off the great American art of storytelling. From the players, coaches, media, the people who were there. Smith corks one in the right down the line. It may go. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. It's a home run. Go crazy. Now, here's Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Sports Rockin' Tours, a show that presents the observations, recollections, and memories of a select group of storytellers who represent the past half century or so of American sports. The people who were actively involved with or bore witness to those events that shaped our childhoods, kept us engaged, and kept us coming back for more. Today, you'll meet someone who excelled on the field, in the boardroom, and in the broadcast booth. With us is Bill White, the all-star first baseman for many years with the Giants, the Cardinals, and the Phillies, and then it was a great broadcaster with the New York Yankees. Also, you might remember him as president of the National League. He wrote an incredible book called Uppity, My Untold Story About the Games People Play. Bill, uh, you had an incredible life. Talk about what it was like in the Carolina League with the Giants. You, I believe, were only the second black American to ever play in that league. I was the only player there that year. I was the second, I think, the year before. They they had a kid uh, from uh, from down there, in, in, I think, in Carolina who played. And then I came down the next year. I didn't want to go there, but uh, we uh, so we ended up in Danville, Virginia. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy, but I took it out on the baseball. It was something. It was a new experience for me. Uh, I was not aware of what was going on in Virginia when I went there, but uh, that's where the Giants sent me. You're college educated, which a lot of ball players at the time went directly into the minor leagues. So that had to be a kind of a culture shock, I would imagine, to go down into the well, the outskirts of the South. Well, it was the South. <laughs> And it was it was pretty much a shock. Uh, the shock was, uh, I think, going to spring training one year, and I uh, had to change uh, trains in in Cincinnati, and being relegated to a, a separate uh, uh, coach there. That that was the first shock, and going through uh, going to spring training that year, that, that that was quite a bit of a shock. The Giants signed me, took me out to Phoenix with the big club. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was great because I uh, met Willie Mays out there, Hank Aaron out there, Ruben Gomez, I think, was there. A lot of guys were there. Uh, we all stayed in the same uh, hotel, and this is uh, back in 1950s. Uh, I think I signed in 1953 or so, and uh, part of my contract uh, was, was to go with the farm team out in uh, in Phoenix, which I did, and Leo DeRocher uh, was a manager then, and it was a good experience. Obviously, I found out I wasn't ready for the big leagues. <laughs> so uh, then uh, they sent me, obviously, to Florida for spring training, and uh, I remember in Cincinnati I had to go to a separate uh, car, but we got through spring training down there and played the first year in Danville, Virginia. So it was it was a different experience for a kid. I think, uh, let's see, I was about... Uh, 
18, 19 years old then. But that, I mean, that's something you hadn't dealt with before. It has to be almost kind of a slap in the face. Like, what is going on here, I would think? Uh, it wasn't uh, It wasn't easy because yeah, I've mentioned being raised uh, in Ohio and going to college in Ohio, going to high school in Ohio in integrated uh, facilities there. No, it wasn't. It was. It wasn't much of a shock because basically, I met you. I was born in Florida, yeah. and I left there when I was three years old. My, my grandmother was smart enough to get us the hell out of there. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> we went up to uh, Warren, Ohio, and and her sons obviously were getting uh, into the twenties, and they all worked in the steel mills there. So it was a great move by my grandmother to get us out of there and moves uh, and moves to Ohio. Uh, where they got uh, decent employment Absolutely. and uh, a better education for well, me. Well, that's great. And then you with the Giants organization, you get to the Cardinals, and now the Cardinals, as teams went at that time, they were fairly progressive, right? And they were building this championship team. I, I always remember that book, 1964, October 1964 by Halberstam, and kind of what, what the Cardinals were doing was a little different, certainly different than the Yankees team they played in the World Series that year. Well, I was signed originally, you know, by the Giants and uh, traded to the Cardinals mm-hmm. uh, after uh, a year uh, uh, in the Army. Uh, I was signed with the Giants and played there, I think, in, what, 56. And then when I came, I went to the Army, and when I came out of the Army, they had Orlando Cepeda and uh, they had Willie McCovey. And they also had another uh, first baseman, a right-handed hitter, uh, like uh, Cepeda. Mm-hmm. McCovey, a tough left hand. Of course, he's in the Hall of Fame. Both of them, in fact, are in the Hall of Fame, McCovey uh, and Cepeda. And so when I came out, uh, uh, they didn't need me. And I for the, I, I remember I asked to be traders, if I can't play here, why don't you get rid of me? And, of course, the general manager of the Giants didn't like that because players back then didn't ask to be traded. But I was fortunate, and he traded me to the Cardinals. Yeah. Short right field fence, uh, 303 down the line, about 320 to right center. And uh, then maybe 355. So uh, that was the best thing that ever happened to me in baseball, going to St. Louis. I didn't like it at the time because I knew that St. Louis was a city that uh, had a lot of prejudice in it. But uh, I ended up playing there, uh, I think, a total of nine years. Yeah. Now, there was a lot of prejudice in the city. The team, though, seemed for the time, right, was, was fairly integrated. Well, uh, it became. Uh, Bing Devine, the general manager, was a fine man. A very, very, very fine and fair man. And to bring, uh, let's see, I had, they had one other black player before me. I think he was also a first baseman with, uh, a year or two before me. But uh, I got there, and Kurt Flood was uh, brought in. And then later on, Bob Gibson was brought in. And then later on, Lou Brock was brought in. Uh, so we, we had some pretty good players oh, yeah. uh, under, under Bing Devine. Wow. Great man, great man, helped me with a lot of things. Uh, when I had trouble there finding a home, uh, Bing Devine uh, helped me, and uh, Jack Buck, the broadcaster, helped me, uh, and uh, our manager uh, helped me. Uh, just, just a lot of people. And I've been very, very uh, uh, lucky in baseball to play with and for good people. And I ended up playing there, I think, a total of nine years. Nice park, short, short uh, right field fence. And uh, the people were good. Uh, I got into broadcasting there, in fact, my last few years. So St. Louis became uh, a great place uh, for me. Well, and that 1964 season was certainly memorable. That you, you mentioned Lou Brock. That was like the final peg, wasn't it, to that great team? Yeah, we had an excellent team. We Gibson, myself, and 
uh, Javier Grote, shortstop, uh, Ken Boyer. Tim McCarver was a catcher. Was a sort of rookie catcher then. And when we got we we, we were fighting uh, Philadelphia. I think uh, we got Brock in the middle of the year, and we just uh, we 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 got close. And then the Phillies should have won it. I think they had 11 game uh, lead or something like that, with a few 14 games left or something. And we got them and beat them. And Brock uh, obviously flood uh, Gibson. Uh, they played a great part uh, in catching uh, the Phillies and winning in 1964. You know, another guy that was on the team you mentioned, Bob Gibson, one of the great pitchers of all time. And what I liked was his fighting spirit. Uh, I heard somewhere, and tell me if this is true or not, that you know he was a great teammate of yours and so forth. As soon as you were traded, boom, he'd be back throwing it hard and inside. Well, it wasn't all that hard inside, but it wasn't. It wasn't. It was probably about oh, 75, 80 miles an hour. <laughs> you told me that uh, when Bob would warm up, when pitchers would warm up, I'd go out and stand and watch him, watch the ball. So it would make sure that when I did pitch, uh, when I did hit against other pitchers, I kept my eye on the ball. And I'd go out and I'd watch the ball, Gibson's throwing, and all of a sudden he, he stopped throwing to the catcher and came halfway to me and said, look, he says, one of these days you're going to get traded. And uh, you can't swing like that at me, or I'll hit you. <laughs> and, of course, I got traded to the Phillies, and the son of a gun, he did hit me. Of course, I hit him a little bit, not often. Nobody hit Gibson often. But uh, it, it was we went out to dinner that night. Well, that's good. You can stay friends anyway. Cause... Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, you, you, baseball isn't, you don't really make that many enemies in baseball. Once in a while, you might dislike a pitcher who throws at you continually and tries to hit you in the head. And you might uh, not like a, a, a guy who uh, will try to take you out. I had some guys try to step on me at first base, or we'd take somebody out at second base. Not illegally, but with your spikes or whatever. So for those things, uh, you want to play hard, and you want players who play hard, and you don't, you respect uh, your opponents if they play hard. But sometimes you can get out of the, you know, you can uh, go too far, and that happens once in a while in baseball. Yeah, and there were guys like Don Drysdale. It didn't matter who you were, right? That ball was going to come in on you. Well, he'd throw at you, but didn't make it. I was a left-handed hitter, and he threw spitballs, which were pitches down, and the ball goes down, and I a little ball hitter. You were the president of the National League. What an important job. And what was the thing that was most uh, you were most proud of in that role? Well, we we uh, kept San Francisco in San Francisco. That was probably one of the uh, biggest things we wanted. Uh, uh, we wanted stability in the league. Uh, the owner of San Francisco had uh, already, I think, signed a contract to move the team to Florida. Uh, Florida had no teams uh, then in the big leagues, and uh, we said, "Wait a minute! You know, San Francisco is a pretty good town to play in." Uh, their attendance has suffered a bit because of the stadium. The stadium was out by, uh, and a lot of the wind blew in. It was cold. Attendance went down. But uh, I think the most uh, important thing is we kept them there. And later on, we put a couple of teams in Florida. But San Francisco stayed in San Francisco. They've done very well. They've done very well attendance-wise. And for the continuity of the game, I thought it was best to keep San Francisco in San Francisco. And National League uh, owners and the American League owners I evidently went along with because uh, we, we kept them there. Uh, it's funny that the, the Florida's having a problem, I guess, with uh, attendance now. We didn't take, we didn't take a team. We, we when we said uh, San Francisco can't go to uh, Florida, mm-hmm. you should 
see some of the papers in, uh, in Florida and the writers and everybody, they got all over me. I hope those guys are going to the ball games now. I hope at least their kids are going to games yeah. because it's, uh, it's, they're having a little problem in Florida now. But uh, they can get through that because now they uh, share uh, revenue. Your career didn't end there. Then you got into you were broadcasting for the. You said you started actually in St. Louis, and then the Yankees. All those years, uh, what was that like? Because all of a sudden you're going to maybe the most famous, legendary franchise of all baseball, and you worked for a while for George Steinbrenner. Well, prior to that, Mike Burke brought me there. Uh, Mike was a really a good, great guy. He was vice president of CBS, I believe, and CBS bought the team, and they made Mike. They had Mike run it. And obviously, after a couple of years, uh, Steinbrenner bought it for $11 million. They're probably worth about 3 or $4 billion now. So it's a pretty good, uh, pretty good purchase. Unfortunately, uh, George uh, is no longer with us. He's a guy yeah. from Cleveland, Ohio. I was, as I mentioned, I'm from Warren, Ohio, 30, 40 miles south of Cleveland. And uh, the connection with Steinbrenner is that uh, uh, some of the guys I went to high school with uh, knew Steinbrenner. The other connection was that uh, uh, I played basketball with a little college in Ohio just about 30 miles south of Cleveland uh, at Hiram College. And one day we're playing a team from uh, Dayton, an Air Force team. I was dribbling down uh, the uh, sideline, down the whatever, and, and there's an arm that grabs, grabs, <laughs> goes out and grabs me, tries to grab me. Years later, when Steinbrenner bought the team, we had a... A luncheon in New York, and I particularly didn't like the way Stan Steinbrenner uh, handled Mike Burke. Mike finally sold his mm-hmm. shares and left uh, because he couldn't get along with Steinbrenner. George was hard to play or work oh, for. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, Phil Rizzuto and I gave a speech, and I was, as I was walking out, there is the former coach of the Air Base team <laughs> at Dayton there. Now, I didn't know who, I didn't remember him, you know, I didn't know him. So as I was walking back by him, and I always spoke to him, but never took a lot of time because I really liked Mike Burke. So he he stopped me, he says, hey, and I said, hi. He says, you don't know who I am now? I said, no. And I said, well, I'm the guy that tried to pull you out of bounds. <laughs> and I, I don't know if we're going to be on here. I said, you were the SOB. <laughs> And uh, we got along for a while. You know, we got along. George didn't like the way I broadcast because I wasn't pro-Yankee. Uh, but uh, he'd end up asking me a lot of questions about, you know, my experiences in baseball, about managers <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and other things that he wanted to do. So we had a good experience. We, 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 were, we were okay together, but he didn't. Uh, he never liked the way I broadcast. That's funny because I... I think it's really uh, great to hear somebody that can, you know, of course it's always from the home team's perspective because you're, you're announcing all their games. But at the same time, you don't want to sound like you're actually rooting for somebody because it's, uh, I don't know, there's a certain well, professionality about that. Would you ever hear Rizzuto do a broadcast? Well, and that's what I was thinking, too. Yeah, so it was a good Normal offset, people right? Like that. Yankee fans <laughs> like that. Yankee fans like that. And I think we did well together. But Phil loved the Yankees so much, and I sort of tried to be neutral. <laughs> and Frank Messer obviously worked with us. Greg, probably better than both of us put together, Rizzuto. And, uh, but uh, Frank worked with us. And uh, I think we had a different crew. And we had a lot of people listening because we're the Yankees, and I think some of the people in the Midwest could get our games. 
How was Phil to work with? I mean, was he was he a lot of fun? He always sounded like he enjoyed himself out there. Well, he did. He didn't like to work too many innings, but uh, he, he would leave early. Yeah, you did stuff for CBS, right? I mean, it was great. I, I remember yeah. listening to you. You did the national broadcast. Yeah, we did some of those. I was lucky because the, uh, our bosses there allowed me to go out and, and do those games and sometimes miss Yankee games. So uh, baseball was, uh, somebody said, baseball has been good to me. <laughs> yeah, it really had. Well, last thing then, you know, you broadcaster, great player, and a... Uh, the I was a good player, not a great player, but I was a good player. I was consistent, <laughs> consistently good. Well, I remember you had at least three years where you were hitting 300, a significant amount of RBIs and home runs. I remember I had your baseball card. I remember that. Distinctly. <laughs> well, that was because of playing mostly in St. Louis over that little short wall. But no, I was I, I was a consistent. I think that the consistency I think was what is good. I could catch it a little bit, and I could run a little bit, and I could field it a little bit, and I could hit it a little bit. And uh, just lucky to play with guys like uh, Musial and Boyer and Willie Mays and guys like that, and to compete with the McCovey and a Cepeda who ran me out of. San Francisco, so that that makes you play a little better. <laughs> well, it was a great era. Now, it's my last question: As you uh, were the president of the National League and so forth, when you watch what's happening today, do you think baseball's doing enough to create opportunities? I mean, you were one of the few people, people of color, that had a front office high position. I, I remember when Frank Robinson was was hired as a manager was a big deal, and it always seemed to me like, well, this seems ridiculous considering all these great players and people that have been in there. You know, why was that so hard? I guess that's a long way to ask you. Do you think baseball's now now doing the right things, or do you think they're still insufficient in this? What in managing? Well, I think we have a lot of Hispanic managers, and I, and, and I believe they. I, I really don't follow. I haven't followed baseball since I left it. Quite honestly, really. No, I, uh, you know, I, I played to make a living, made a good living, and uh, played for, I don't know how many years, nine, but maybe 13 years, and broadcasted for 18 years, and ran it for five, and that was enough. And I, I <laughs> used to go to Philly games, uh, opening day, and because uh, I, I played a couple years with the Phillies. Yeah. I, I snapped my tendon and didn't do well. I played, had one the first year, it was a good year, and then I couldn't play anymore, but they kept me in and sent me back to St. Louis. Because the Cardinals wanted me to manage, and I didn't want to go to minor leagues, learn how to manage. They wanted me to go down to manage and come uh, go down to minors and manage a year, and then come up to the biggies. And I, I didn't want to do that. Do you, do you watch any sports anymore? Or is it just something that eh, did, did done that? I'm a Cleveland Browns fan. Uh, I've never been to see the uh, Eagles play. I'm a Browns fan. I remember what it was 1957. They played in the Browns one. I always remember that. I think that's the year. So I sort of kid the Philly, the Philly fans because I think they beat the, the not the Philly fans the Eagles fans, but I, I do watch football every once in a while. Because right. Warren, Ohio is a big football town. You know, Ohio is big football. And, oh yeah. Uh, we got most of our kids go to Ohio State. I wasn't good enough, so I had to go to little school. <laughs> I had maybe three or four hundred people, and I was hiring. And played football there for a year. You were good in baseball. There's no question. Hey, thanks so much for talking with us. Really appreciate no it, Bill. Problem. Thank All you. Right. Thank you. Right on. Thanks, Bill. Make sure to read White's autobiography, Uppity, My Untold Story About the Games People Play. Go to the Vegas Never Sleeps website and check out the Sports Rock and Tours page. You can hear bonus content there from this conversation, as well as a number of other great sports stories. Don't forget to follow us on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
Thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Manchin. Okay, Sean, we need to talk about our training budget. We're spending almost $1,500 per employee each year. What's the plan? Well, ma'am, 42% of companies are saying that e-learning has led to an increase in revenue. What does that do about the travel expense? E-learning allows employees to learn wherever they are. Then we need to consider the time away from production. I heard that e-learning takes up to 60% less employee time than traditional classroom training. Perfect. Let's find a curriculum company, a development company, a learning management software company. Actually, Epsilon XR specializes in end-to-end learning solutions with tools such as instructor-led training, online classrooms, simulations, virtual and augmented reality, and curriculum development. Get Epsilon XR on the phone. Epsilon XR creates immersive learning environments that engage with your learner, resulting in improved information retention, which leads to better performance and ultimately an increase in revenue. Or more at elearning.epsilonxr.com.